Stat. Native American women are more likely to experience rape and sexual assault than any other demographic group, two and a half times more likely than whites or African Americans, and five times more likely than Asian Americans. Stat. One in three Native American women will be a victim of rape. Stat. On certain reservations, female leaders argue that number is even higher. Their talk. In a previous episode of Stats Out Loud, we mentioned the talk that black families have with their black children, particularly black boys. But imagine if you, as a young girl, were given literature describing what to do when you are raped. In this episode of Stats Out Loud, we explore what research has to say about those we in the United States call Native Americans. Joining me in this episode will be Melissa Spence and Suta Callinglast. I stand with them. As their nations fall under siege, I stand. Though the rivers where our two tribes met are dried up since touched by the hand of the trickster called America, I stand with them because I hear with them the cries of ancestors and ancestral trauma carried from seed to seed, ancestral trauma carried from cell to cell. Our anguish wrapped around each other like a double helix, genes mutated at the inception of this nation, America. I hear the drums of their forefathers joined to the rhythm of chains tethered at my forefathers' feet. The drums of two nations beat in anguish. I stand with them through the false treaties that have been broken in their tribes and mine, as if you could legislate humanity, as if full laws restored their sanity. You never once intended equality in your equal rights amendmentings. You took liberties with their kindness. You took liberties and you binded free souls and you united states of hate that divided them from their state of well-being, of being, being. And yes, you do participate every time you choose to look the other way while they die at epidemic rates at 50% greater and young women raped on the remnants of their soil. Incidences of rape go largely unknown. So I stand with them and ban with them and challenge you to demand with them justice. Your spit in a tube does not make you one of them. Stop this weird over associate with them. You can just take that janky fake long haired granny from the stories you fashionate of them of being 164th of them on your mama's side. You bound yourself to the exotic and put on costumes of native pride, but you don't clothe yourself in the burden of their pain. Are your daughters murdered wholesale and no one explains? You want to align with your 1 and 128 Cherokee veins? Stand, stand with them for their rights, for the rights of their sisters to walk home at night. 
Stand, stand with me with them. Stand in solidarity. Stand as they remove their cloak of invisibility. Stand to illuminate the disparity and support them. No white saviors, please. No black saviors either. They are in charge of their own reality. They direct their destiny. And as they do, I stand. I stand, I stand behind them, I stand. Stand, will you? Welcome to Indigenous Vision Music. I'm really feeling myself. Pegeen Fitzgerald, Susan Stamberg, Dorothy Brunson, Irene Mojica, Melissa Spins. Oh, wait, who? Oh, yeah. There's a good chance that you've never heard of Melissa Spins, but you will. As female and indigenous, Melissa is a standard bearer in the field of broadcast. But Spence is a radio personality who has rightfully earned a place among other broadcasters regardless of gender or so-called race. If you've never considered the absence of indigenous voices in broadcast, you join the ranks of us who contribute to the malignant neglect of our sisters and brothers who are routinely absent in the conversations and spaces of what and who is considered in the Americas. On this episode of Stats Out Loud, we discuss research related to how an entire group of people present at the inception of this country remain invisible and sometimes even missing. What you are hearing are the sounds from the podcast IV Music, which is the brainchild of Melissa. IV, or Indigenous Vision, is the organization founded by Suta Calling Last. Indigenous Vision works to revitalize indigenous communities through quality programs that promote well-being. I sat down with Melissa and the founder and director of IV, Suta Calling Last. Melissa and Suda provided insight on what is happening in the indigenous communities that we should be aware of. Y'all come back for the interview. So we've already been introduced to Melissa Spence. Let's listen as Melissa discusses being a child of the 60s scoop and also being raised in the most racist city in Canada. Uh, but um, explain how you came to be in, um, in the United States. All right, so I am an Ojibwe native, our indigenous person, which is, I guess, traditionally our territory is kind of like around the Great Lakes area, but we kind of relocated to the plains of Manitoba, which is where the capital of that province is Winnipeg, which is where I grew up. My parents um, were from the rural areas from that place, and they were a part of the 60s scoop, which was when they were taken from their families and put into foster care homes 
So they were taken from their original communities, put into foster homes, and then raised by non-Indigenous people. And then when they grew up, they moved to the city, and then I was born. So I have a, I'm reflective of that system. So I grew up in the city of Winnipeg, which is, it's not even a million population, but there is a very dense population of Native people. So I grew up around my, my type of people my whole life. So I'm very used to it. It wasn't a reservation. I've never lived on a reservation, but I grew up in the inner city with a lot of Native people and all of the traumas that everyone's carrying around. So I'm really accustomed to that. And I just thought it was a normal way of life. That's the way it is. And went to school. After school, I went to broadcasting school, got a job at a, a small radio station in a small town. And then the Native radio station that was, I guess, the head of Indigenous Broadcasting Canada got wind of me on this little station in the country and called me and asked me to work for them. So I did that, and that kind of launched my career into Indigenous radio and just radio in general. And I did six years with them. I eventually got to travel, see the world, fell in love with the desert, moved to Phoenix, and now I'm here doing my own thing with Indigenous Vision. So I've progressed greatly from this small little place to here. So when I say that you're a badass, I'm not kidding. You worked at this radio station, but yeah. you were um, the first Indigenous. Yeah, it was a really unique environment. Now that I think about it, in con contrast to how the rest of the world is, it was called Native Communications Incorporated, or NCI-FM. And I was given a really rare opportunity to, one, be a female um, morning show host in the lead position. Because usually most females on morning shows get a cheerleading position or just like the sidekick, right? I got to lead it. I got to be the music director. And I also got to be the program director. I also helped create the station, which was the, all, the internal networking of it all. So the music scheduling, designing clocks so that everything would run properly. And then I did this countdown show as well that eventually made its way onto Sirius XM, which was the very first Indigenous countdown show, music countdown show which I think really needed to I guess lead us into the mainstream so I did that too so I did all these things which I think was only possible at an indigenous organization because I had tried working at rock stations pop stations um, oldie stations I just could not break through I don't know what it was but I was able to flourish in a native organization and I think that really helped me build the skills that I had if I had been somewhere else maybe I wouldn't I've been able to, you know, stretch as far as I could. So I'll always be really thankful for that. Wow. I think we all are. I'm listening to you, and I'm thinking of just how important it is to have our, our sheroes that yeah. look like us or exactly. look something like us. And you definitely had your sheroes. Would yeah. You like I did. Them? I grew up listening to radio because this is obviously I'm, like, almost 40. So before the Internet, before, I guess, even, like, MTV, I didn't really watch MTV when I was growing up. It was all radio. I'd have a Walkman, and I would just listen to the radio nonstop. And there was DJs that I would listen to on classic rock stations, and I would just worship them. There was, one was a man, and one was a female. The, the guy is someone that I look up even to, to this day. He was just very passionate about music. He spoke from the heart. He never went on script, and people either hated him or loved him because of his uniqueness. And then there was a female who was, um, she had a really deep, sultry voice, and I was like, she's so cool. You know, but I've never seen like a, an indigenous radio DJ before. So I just grew up liking whoever was around, you know. So for me to come on and like do my thing 
Um, I'm hoping like other people would be inspired by that. Like maybe there's another Melissa in the making or someone's going to make their own podcast one day. And I think a lot of people in the city of Winnipeg, when I was doing my thing, people would notice and they're like, oh my goodness, there's like a native chick doing the morning show and like running the station. And then, you know, we would do events like at powwows or some sort of concert. We put up a booth and like all these little girls would come up and they'd be like so shy to even say hello. And I'd be like, hey, yes, you could totally do this. It's so easy. You just have to like, you know, not care so much. But you can't tell a young person that. They have to like live it and learn it. So like I did. Like I used to be a very shy, like, like way too insecure person. And you just have to like push yourself to do it. And I think the more people see that other people doing that, they'll be more inclined to do that themselves. So like a true gladiator, you mentor the next step down, that next generation. Yeah, we always had interns come in from reservations from like really far up north. They would come in and they were always the same type of kid, you know, really shy, never wanted to say anything. But like towards the end of their internship, you could see that breaking in them. They'd be like, wow, you guys really don't give a shit here. And I'd be like, no, we don't. This world is too effed up for us to like be like that forever. So... Every time someone like that would come through, we would really try to, like, just let them go at their own pace and, like, just, just observe us and see how we are, you know, because everyone's got a different personality, a different way to learn, a different way to be, so to be creative anyways. And coming from this place of strength and, and now being here in Phoenix and at right. the organization, and I'm going to ask you to identify the organization in just a second, but you do this wonderful thing at the organization that passes down that strength perspective to women to allow them to empower their own lives. So speak just a little bit about where you are now and some of the things that that organization is doing with women. Well, I actually happened to meet Suta Calling last, like right when I moved here. It was a twist of fate, I swear. And she had this huge idea that uh, she was starting this organization and I had this big, you know, radio background of like podcasting and stuff. And I just came here and I was just trying to figure out what I was going to do because I wasn't feeling completely fulfilled in Canada. I always wanted to do my own thing on my own terms. Over there, it was really cool to work with all those people and with that type of work. But I wanted to do something more authentic to myself. So I came here kind of clueless, not really sure what I was going to do. Couldn't get a job anywhere. So I just worked in random places and eventually developed my own little podcast show. And at the same time, Suta was developing her indigenous vision, which is a huge, vast array of, um, I don't know what you would call them. It's hard Suta's to describe. Services. Services. Activities. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, it's a whole bunch of projects all leading to, you know, the betterment of indigenous communities, people, just the whole, like, grasp of it all. And my role what she invited me to do was to just kind of be like the celebratory factor of all because there's so much heavy, um, so many heavy topics that we have to talk about and work through and there's just so, so much going on. And I have this really big celebratory nature. Like I just, I can't talk about heavy stuff for too long because I get super depressed and I'm super music driven. So I thought, well, hey, why don't we do like a music show and just, you know, put the, the really good things that our people do up front and just make it super hype. So I eventually started to do that. And um, we've done like probably a hundred episodes already since Indigenous Vision started. So I do Indigenous Vision music and my unofficial title could be the song keeper. So that's what I do for them. And we're heading to Gathering of Nations for the first time to hopefully, you know, 
get other people to notice what we're doing and maybe jump on it too. So that's what I do now. And then I have my side project, which is another type of product. Uh, podcast music show and i just launched my own record label last week so i'm starting that i have two releases coming up in april my first um my first time ever doing this so i'm slowly like starting to do my dream but it you know it's, it's a slow process wow as melissa said um she could be called the um keeper of the songs or the um, keeper of the music, and she and Suta banded together so perfectly. We're going to hear a little bit more now from Suta, who is the founder and director of Indigenous Voices. We have Suta. Can you just introduce yourself? Okay, uh, Suta Daniku Sutaki Sakabakumi. Hello, everybody. My name is Rain Woman, last one standing on the battlefield making a war cry. And I am the executive director of Indigenous Vision. We're a nonprofit organization, an educational nonprofit that works to record, identify, and raise awareness around environmental and social injustices. Great. And so I actually met Suta at a workshop, I'm calling it, for cultural humility. And I was. I actually only came into the concept of cultural humility maybe two or three years ago when I was doing uh, my own volunteer work as a sexual advocate, and so we had to go through that training. I had never heard of it before. Before, I just thought I was competent in everyone else's culture because they taught me about it. But um, you know, as I learned then and continued to learn at the workshop, we can't be competent in someone else's culture, and. Um, and that's where I met you. Mm-hmm. Right. So competency is a, uh, is a thing of the past, or it was a brief moment in human history. Um, going through the evolution of, of training people how to relate to each other, I think humility is an indigenous concept uh, because we've, we've had, um, we respected the rights of an individual we respected the rights of other tribes. Um, we let them be who they were, how they wanted to be, wherever they wanted to be, unless it was in our hunting territory. <laughs> and then, um, and then we whooped their butts uh, to to take that back. But um, I'm I'm Blackfoot. That's a, a warring plains tribe. Uh, they called us the Lords of the Plains, and uh, we were feared um, throughout the entire Alberta, Montana area, uh, mostly because we we had um, this deep concept of purpose and afterlife, and, and that this stop in our human bodies was just a very short stop, and and the reflection on, on how our, our souls evolve um, really put a different perspective on how we were in terms of um, relationships and respecting one another but i digress i'm 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 going off i'm going off (laughs) suda didn't digress she is right on track according to bakote kapina in a journal article on the the debate between cultural competency and cultural humility the concept of cultural competency first appeared in the social work journals and was referred to as ethnic competency so, quoting Chiarenza in 2012, Bakote Campina asserted that existing concepts of cultural competence 
share two basic assumptions, namely, cultural competence is a necessary and sufficient condition for working effectively with differences, and that cultural competence can be taught, learned, trained, and achieved. Listen as Suda explains what that looks like in healthcare. Continued genocide of indigenous people in the U.S. and Canada. Um, it, it fits the institutional agenda, which is racist in, in its fundamental um, beginnings and its foundation, uh, that indigenous people essentially are just in the way of progress. And um, I, going back to humility versus competency, um, humility may have been what led to the demise, uh, but it's a new concept that's coming back because people are so unhappy. Um, mental health crisis among youth is at an all-time high. Suicide rates for uh, indigenous youth are at an all-time high. Uh, cop brutality is at an all-time high. And, and most of those institutions, cops, academic institutions, justice systems, are all based on this white supremacy uh, foundation where the people who are handing down the judgments aren't related to the people, don't look like the people, um, have no background or understanding of the people, and these people have most likely taken an, a competency class or an implicit bias class. And in some of those trainings, you do learn stereotypes. So, so competency training in the medical field, you'll get a, uh, a doctor who sees a a Hispanic lady, and he says to his assistant, um, don't give her any pain medication. She's, she's probably over-exaggerating. Hispanics are known to do that. As of all people of color are known to, to um, over-exaggerate their pain. Well, one of the girls in my, my humility cohort said, as a social worker and a medical social worker, she said, hell yeah, I'm going to over-exaggerate my pain because I come from an immigrant mother who didn't know how to speak English and I was her translator. And um, if I'm hurt, I was brought up under the understanding that nobody would listen to me unless I say my pain is a 10. If I say my pain's five or six, they're going to say, take some aspirin and go home. Um, so yes, I'm going to over-exaggerate because I need the attention. As Suda outlined this problem, I heard another way of making indigenous people invisible, another way of making them absent from culture. If I can speak for your pain, if I can be in charge of defining and then rescuing your pain to my satisfaction, we see this over and over in popular books and movies as white saviors come, live among people of color for a time, and become experts on the plight of the poor fill-in-the-blank as the white savior rescues the poor fill-in-the-blank in two hours or less. It's dehumanizing to treat people as rescue dogs, to not let them be in charge of their own humanity. It's one step away from the brutal dehumanizing way in which, in this case, indigenous people have been treated. Listen more to Suda. We come as African-American people from the knowledge that for so long we were seen as three-quarter of 
a man, not even a whole human. Is there something like that? Yes, Native people are known as animals or dogs. Like we had um, bounties for our skin, our scalps, uh, different prices set on women and children. Um, I can't remember which direction it goes, but it, the saying was, kill the nits and you kill the lice, mm -hmm. in terms of speaking about our women and children. We were imprisoned. Uh, we uh, were removed from our lands, had to receive permission to leave the lands. Our hunting rights were taken away. We essentially starved uh, through this transition. And where disease didn't take us out, alcoholism did. And where that didn't take us out, we took our own selves out. Suda speaks about the horror of her ancestors. In a first-person account, we starved. Our scalps were sold. I'm familiar with this historical accounting of pain because I use it when talking about how we were bought and sold and how we were kidnapped and how we were raped. I heard in Suta's account the pain and trauma that I hear in my own voice. To me, it is the memory of pain that was passed down at the cellular level. That's not a statistic. That's just how I feel. I am saddened listening to someone else expressing and feeling that kind of trauma. In an article from a 2019 Journal of Child and Adolescent Trauma, a group of researchers who describe themselves as allies working with indigenous families and communities in Canada presented a review of literature this year on generational trauma. You can check her blog and that as well as other statistics will be there. One of the most traumatic experiences that defies imagination is the treatment of women and girls. You heard in our stats portion of the episode the unforgivable numbers of women and girls violated. Listen as Suda describes how invisible and disposable these women are. What really struck me, growing up, I, I knew women just disappeared. Um, and it just was something that was normal. And you could just disappear. And nobody will look for you. You'll have a flyer circulated. There's no really large things. It helped if you had a large family. Um, but one of the things that really stuck with me when I was a teenager, a girl was rescued from sex trafficking near the man camps. And... Um, and this was in northern Alberta, I believe. And she said that while she was imprisoned, held against her will, the people who were buying her were the cops. The people who were buying her were the firefighters. Mm -hmm. And she said, her one statement that stuck with me is, who do you go to? Where do you turn for help when the people who are supposed to help you are buying you? That's powerful. And Melissa... It doesn't fare much better in Canada. Yes, growing up in Winnipeg, pretty much the hub of racism. There was even a big article published in one of their main magazines how it just said, Winnipeg, the most racist city in Canada, and it caused this huge uproar, and the article just went into all of the reasons that made that part of Canada the most racist, and one of the biggest reasons was the missing and murdered Indigenous women, how it's just like people would come there just to pluck them out, out of the population. 
and it really got people talking about how there could be this big underground ring of people like the police involved and everything because so many people would go missing and i remember when it really hit me was when i was younger my mom's friend went to the bar who was like her best friend and was poisoned and died and no one blinked an eye there was no investigation she was just a native woman who went to the bar got too drunk and died but she was actually poisoned and who knows what really happened to her and that's when it dawned on me i was like wow you can just go out and die you can just go out and be missing like i was probably seven or eight years old and i was just like that is so crazy and i began to see the world differently from that age and then as i got older the issues just got worse and worse and i just became more and more aware of like how bad it really was girls going missing all the time on a weekly basis and as i got into the um, organization I, I worked for, NCIFM, we became involved in a huge event held every year by Bernadette Smith, who is probably one of the leading people in the city I'm from, who would spearhead um, awareness for missing and murdered Indigenous women. And she would create an event every summer just to, you know, celebrate the lives of the people who had gone missing, a place for the families to come just to grieve, just to come out and meet each other, just to just to be around each other. So every year we would have this big, um, like an outdoor celebration. So there would be all these artists performing, you know, a lot of the Indigenous media would be there. So there's like an Indigenous television organization as well. So those news anchors would come, all those reporters would all take turns like emceeing, people performing. And it just became this yearly event to kind of just... Anybody was allowed to come and witness and see the families that you would hear on the news. You know, you'd, every because every day on the news there was something going on. And it became just really well known that there were so many people going missing. And Bernadette Smith was actually really, really, I guess, pivotal for that in Winnipeg. She even created um, an event called Drag the Red because the city is made of two rivers and a lot of the bodies would get dumped in the rivers. So she took it upon herself because no one's doing anything in the, you know, the systems to drag the river herself with her friends because I guess they're all fishermen, right? They're, they're, they're Cree people. They would fish on the lake. So they would get their own boats, they would get their own nets and they would drag the river and they found so many body parts. So much DNA was pulled from the river of people who had been missing. And then when people get convicted, they would just walk. That's another thing that would cause these huge rallies to happen in the city. There was um, Tina Fontaine, who was a very young girl. Yeah, this is really sad. And she was murdered by an older white guy and dumped in the river. They got him, and he walked. That's, Unbelievable. That's amazingly frustrating. Yeah, like in my city, all the time. Yes. I, I read that in 2015, 25% of all homicides were Indigenous women. Yeah. In 2015, and I, I don't know what it is as of 2019. It was not as easy to collect data on um, statistics on rape on Indigenous women or statistics on Indigenous people in general. If there are any curious artists out there listening, please reach out with any information, research data that you have. In general, there is a scarcity of research on Indigenous people compared to other people of color. We do our best to explore updated statistics on the blog that accompanies this episode. You can check us out at statsoutloud.wordpress.com. 
You can also make comments with any recent stats or research that you are aware of. We end the interview segment with where you can ping Melissa and Suta. After the art segment, you are welcome to listen to the unedited portion of my interview with Melissa and Suta. Crazy. So, but you you both are here now in Phoenix, yeah. And, and you're working at this organization. How do you see what you are doing every day um, as a change agent for what's happening with Native people within right? People? So I struggle with that my whole life. I can't change anything really. I just have to change myself. So I do the things that I need to do to process this world in a good way. So that's what I'm doing. And hopefully it inspires someone to do the same. That's the only way I've tried to figure this out. Mm-hmm. And so that's the only way. Yeah, very, very similar to Melissa. It's, uh, the work has to start with the individual. And um, we need uh, mentors out there essentially uh, to show that there is a, a positive life after so much historical and current trauma. And um, and the organization in particular, it's, it's slow work, but we're working to record these environmental and the social injustices and uh, where hate crimes are happening versus where environmental uh, sacred sites are being desecrated. And we hope that this project is not only just for native kids in a native community i hope that this project essentially builds out to um, institutional change in the american and canadian educational systems so i'm putting this project together so that a doctorate student can use it in her thesis and i'm also putting it in uh, language that a fifth grader can be entertained by it but the most important thing is that i work as a recorder to work with the tribes to rewrite that narrative from our own perspective and not the conqueror's perspective and to get that information out to the world brings a justice uh, to humanity. Um, It's an injustice to humanity to have anyone's story retold in a different way to fit somebody else's agenda. So in looking at your Facebook page, I see that there are just so many opportunities for exactly what you're talking about. So I'd like for you both to just take some time now and do a commercial, plug what you want to plug. Interesting. So I have so many things. So um, if you are um, an ally, accomplice, an indigenous person, and you know of any social injustice, any environmental injustice, please contact me. Let's get it recorded. Um, One little story of microaggression leads to a big picture perspective. And I don't think non-indigenous people or the world is going to understand... um, essentially the continued plight of the native person and 
And uh, the only way to have things change is by first acknowledging that there's a problem, right? You can't cure cancer unless you know where the cancer is. And so the, the cancer is this ignoring of our history and our right to be as we are without trying to mold us into what um, society thinks a man or a woman should be. Uh, let us be the indigenous people we are. And and that doesn't mean we want to go back to living in teepees and, and riding our horses. That means that we want to practice our religions. We want to dress the way we want to dress. We don't want to be defined by this Euro-American um, idea of a woman or a man. And we want to be um, who we are in our own distinct cultures in the time now. And how about you, Melissa? All right, so I guess in terms of indigenous vision. You said a commercial? You plug whenever you want to plug. So as creative people, because we are very creative people, especially people of the drum, if you are a musician, an artist, I encourage you to get into a studio, record something, go out and just perform and just share your gift with the world because we might pick it up and play it on Indigenous Vision Music. I love it. Where can we find you? Um, we have a SoundCloud page now, which is really cool that they've just put up. So it's um, soundcloud.com slash indigenousvision. You can also hit up our website, indigenousvision.org. There's also the music tab there that will lead you to our music show because I take care of the celebratory aspect of life because I need to or else I'll get super bummed out. Um, but yeah, I think that's really great. I think I would love to see what we're doing kind of evolve into a place where we can create spaces for people to be creative because I noticed in America um, there's not really a whole lot of studio action going on compared to Canada where there's lots of I guess cultural funding for music Wow, it's a lot easier for an indigenous artist to get into a studio and produce that track album or whatever they want to do whereas here there's all this talent just kind of wandering and circuiting around but no one's able to go into a studio so I would love to somehow make that happen yeah and where can we find you indigenousvision.org uh, my email is there info at indigenousvision.org if you want to email us um, and we also hold uh, our community dialogue uh, and discussions uh, a dialogue is more more along the lines uh, is that we just essentially want to create that space so um, whether you're native you're not native black Chinese, Japanese, whatever you are uh, we all need tools to help us build healthy relationships with dropping that colonial mentality of hierarchy and um, uh, discrimination. And so our cultural humility dialogues are open to the community. Uh, They're once a month, once every six weeks. And then we also have paid trainings if you are in a workplace environment that's just hostile to your well-being. Um, invite your boss, invite your coworkers, come out to a training. Uh, those are certificate trainings. We can do CEUs for people who need those. And, um, and, and let's uh, start being the change ourselves. Let's create a better world together. Wow. I want to thank you both for sitting down with me today, and I'm um, looking forward to doing more work with you guys myself. For sure. I'm totally down. Thank you for listening. That's all for this episode. For the stats in print, 
for the Stats Out Loud, check out our blog at statsoutloud.wordpress or drop me a line at statsoutloud.gmail.com. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I've never worked with this. I have bad luck sometimes. Test, maybe test, maybe one, two, three. Hello, hello. Testing. Yeah, right. And I'm sure you can't hear me as well. Well, but we'll, we'll put the splitters yeah. in. Yeah. We're going back on. And, all right, so even though the mic is on, I just still want to just do like a little preliminary conversation. And then, like I said, I'll edit all of this out in a little bit. Um, so what I'm going to do is, you know, I'm going to ask you some questions. Mm-hmm. Like, you are extraordinary. You know what I'm going to do. In fact, you're going to be like, why didn't you do this? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll act surprised. <laughs> why didn't you do that? Next time. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I just have just some basic notes for myself to go off of. And really just wanting to, we had already talked that we would... You're giving me your perspective from right. Canada. Yeah. So. That's where I grew up, so that's the only perspective I kind of have. <laughs> and then my couple years here, which... Mm-hmm. Which has the highest murder rates in all of Canada, and I'm assuming... Yeah. Um, highest murder rates for Native populations throughout the U.S. and Canada. I think the other one might be like um, Omaha, Nebraska for missing murder conditions. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just jump right in. Yeah. So I'm here with Melissa Spence. Yes. And uh, we are going to talk about the indigenous population in Canada. So Melissa is going to introduce herself. I have been bragging on about just what a bad, I'm shut a your mouth. Baddie. <laughs> mother, shut your mouth, <laughs> Melissa is. Uh, but um, explain how you came to be in um, in the United States. All right, so I am an Ojibwe native, our indigenous person, which is, I guess, traditionally our territory is kind of like around the Great Lakes area, but we kind of relocated to the plains of Manitoba, which is where the capital of that province is, Winnipeg, which is where I grew up. My parents um, were from the rural areas from that place, and they were a part of the 60s scoop, which was when they were taken from their families and put into foster care homes. So they were taken from their original communities, put into foster homes, and then raised by non-indigenous people. And then when they grew up, they moved to the city, and then I was born. So I have a, I'm reflective of that system. So I grew up in the city of Winnipeg, which is, it's not even a million population, but there is a very dense population of Native people. So I grew up around my my type of people my whole life. So I'm very used to it. It wasn't a reservation. I've never lived on a reservation, but I grew up in the inner city with a lot of Native people and all of the traumas that everyone's carrying around. So I'm really accustomed to that. And I just thought it was a normal way of life. That's the way it is. And went to school. After school, I went to broadcasting school, got a job at a, a small radio station in a small town. And then the native radio station that was, I guess, the head of Indigenous Broadcasting Canada got wind of me on this little station in the country and called me and asked me to work for them. So I did that. And that kind of launched my career into Indigenous radio and just radio in general. And I did six years with them. I eventually 
got to travel, see the world, fell in love with the desert, moved to Phoenix, and now I'm here doing my own thing with Indigenous Vision. So I've progressed greatly from this small little place to here. So when I say that you're a badass, I'm not kidding. You worked <laughs> at this radio station, but yeah. you were um, the first Indigenous. Yeah. It was a really unique environment. Now that I think about it, in con contrast to how the rest of the world is, it was called Native Communications Incorporated, or NCIFM. And I was given a really rare opportunity to, one, be a female um, morning show host in the lead position. Because usually most females on morning shows get a cheerleading position or just like the sidekick, right? I got to lead it. I got to be the music director. And I also got to be the program director. I also helped create the station, which was the all the internal networking of it all, so the music scheduling, designing clocks so that everything that would run properly. And then I did this countdown show as well that eventually made its way onto Sirius XM, which was the very first indigenous countdown show, music countdown show, which I think really needed to, I guess, lead us into the mainstream. So I did that too. So I did all these things, which I think was only possible at an indigenous organization because I had tried working at rock stations, pop stations, um, oldie stations, and I just could not break through. I don't know what it was, but I was able to flourish in a native organization. And I think that really helped me build the skills that I had. If I had been somewhere else, maybe I wouldn't have been able to, you know, stretch as far as I could. So. I'll always be really thankful for that. Wow, <clears throat> I think we all are. I'm listening to you and I'm thinking of just how important it is to have our, our sheroes that yeah. look like us or exactly. look something like us. And you definitely had your sheroes. Would yeah, you like to tell us I did. Them? I grew up listening to radio because this is obviously I'm like almost 40. So before the internet, before I guess even like MTV, I didn't really watch MTV when I was growing up. It was all radio. I'd have a Walkman and I would just listen to the radio nonstop. And there was DJs that I would listen to on classic rock stations and I would just worship them. There was, one was a man and one was a female. The, the guy is someone that I look up even to, to this day. He was just very passionate about music. He spoke from the heart. He never went on script and people either hated him or loved him because of his uniqueness. And then there was a female who was, um, she had a really deep, sultry voice. And I was like, she's so cool. You know, but I've never seen like a, an indigenous radio DJ before. So I just grew up liking whoever was around, you know, so for me to come on and like do my thing, um, I'm hoping like other people would be inspired by that. Like maybe there's another Melissa in the making or someone's going to make their own podcast one day. And I think a lot of people in the city of Winnipeg, when I was doing my thing, people would notice and they're like, oh my goodness, there's like a native chick doing the morning show and like running the station. And I'm you know, we would do events like at powwows or some sort of concert. We put up a booth and like all these little girls would come up and they'd be like so shy to even say hello. And I'd be like, hey, yes, you could totally do this. It's so easy. You just have to like, you know, not care so much. But you can't tell a young person that. They have to like <laughs> live it and learn it. So like I did, like I used to be a very shy, like, like way too insecure person. And you just have to like push yourself to do it. And I think, the more people see that other people doing that, they'll be more inclined to do that themselves. So like a true gladiator, you mentor the next step down, that next generation. Yeah, we always had interns come in from reservations from like really far up north. They would come in and they were always the same type of kid, you know, really shy, never wanted to say anything. But like towards the end of their internship, you could see that breaking in them. They'd be like, wow, you guys really don't give a shit here. And I'd be mm -hmm. like, whoa, we don't. 
this world is too effed up for us to like be like that forever. So every time someone like that would come through, we would really try to like just let them go at their own pace and like just just observe us and see how we are, you know, because everyone's got a different personality, a different way to learn, a different way to be. So to be creative anyways. And coming from this place of strength and, and now being here in Phoenix and at right. the organization, and I'm going to ask you to identify the organization in just a second, but you do this wonderful thing <clears throat> at the organization that passes down that strength perspective to women to allow them to empower their own lives. So speak just a little bit about where you are now and some of the things that that organization is doing with women. Well, I actually happened to meet Suta Collinglass, like right when I moved here. It was a twist of fate, I swear. And she had this huge idea that uh, she was starting this organization and I had this big, you know, radio background of like podcasting and stuff. And I just came here and I was just trying to figure out what I was going to do because I wasn't feeling completely fulfilled in Canada. I always wanted to do my own thing on my own terms. Over there, it was really cool to work with all those people and with that type of work, but I wanted to do something more authentic to myself. So I came here kind of clueless, not really sure what I was going to do, couldn't get a job anywhere. So I just worked in random places and eventually developed my own little podcast show. And at the same time, Suta was developing her indigenous vision, which is a huge, vast array of, um, I don't know what you would call them. It's hard Suta's to describe. Services. Services. Activities. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, it's a whole bunch of projects all leading to, you know, the betterment of indigenous communities, people, just the whole, like, grasp of it all. And my role what she invited me to do was to just kind of be like the celebratory factor of all because there's so much heavy, um, so many heavy topics that we have to talk about and work through and there's just so, so much going on and I have this really big celebratory nature like I just I can't talk about heavy stuff for too long because I get super depressed and I'm super music driven so I thought well hey why don't we do like a music show and just you know put the the really good things that our people do up front and just make it super hype. So I eventually started to do that. And um, we've done like probably a hundred episodes already since Indigenous Vision started. So I do Indigenous Vision music and my unofficial title could be the song keeper. So that's what I do for them. And we're heading to Gathering of Nations for the first time to hopefully, you know, get other people to notice what we're doing and maybe jump on it too so that's what I do now and then I have my side project which is another type of prod, uh, podcast music show and I just launched my own record label last week so I'm starting that I have two releases coming up in April my first um, my first time ever doing this so I'm slowly like starting to do my dream but it you know it's, it's a slow process wow so yeah we'll be getting some commercials out there for what <laughs> you're doing and uh, the organization and um, one of the things that I, I did want to speak about, because it speaks directly to what we're going to talk about, is the, um, tell me about the organization where women learn self-defense. It's called... Uh, yeah, that would have to be... Okay, so we will speak you to you. Do you want me to transfer mics at this point? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. okay. yeah. my voice is really okay. notoriously low. Um, we have Suda, can you just introduce yourself? Uh, okay, Suta Sakobakomi. 
Hello everybody, my name is Rain Woman, last one standing on the battlefield making a war cry. And I am the executive director of Indigenous Vision. We're a nonprofit organization, an educational nonprofit that works to record, identify, and raise awareness around environmental and social injustices. Great. And so I actually met Suta at a workshop, I'm calling it, for cultural humility. And I was I actually only came into the concept of cultural humility maybe two or three years ago when I was doing uh, my own volunteer work as a sexual advocate. And so we had to go through that training. I had never heard of it before. Before, I just thought I was competent in everyone else's culture because they taught me about it. But, um, you know, as I learned then and continued to learn at the workshop, we can't be competent in someone else's culture. and. Um, and that's where I met you. Mm -hmm. Right. So competency is a, uh, is a thing of the past, or it was a brief moment in human history. Um, going through the evolution of, of training people how to relate to each other, I think humility is an indigenous concept uh, because we've, we've had, um, we respected the rights of an individual we respected the rights of other tribes. Um, we let them be who they were, how they wanted to be, wherever they wanted to be, unless it was in our hunting territory. <laughs> and, then, um, and then we whooped their butts uh, to, to take that back. But um, I'm, I'm Blackfoot, that's a, a warring plains tribe. Uh, they called us the Lords of the Plains, and uh, we were feared um, throughout the entire Alberta, Montana area, uh, mostly because we we had um, this deep concept of purpose and afterlife, and and that this stop in our human bodies was just a very short stop, and and the reflection on on how our our souls evolve um, really put a different perspective on how we were in terms of. Um, relationships and respecting one another but I digress I'm 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 it's going off good. I'm going off it's all good, <laughs> so. it's all good. Um, that that tells us more about how important it is to to keep these ties to your culture um, you know we come from different cultures and I definitely have had a difficult time being able to maintain the roots of my own culture, not even knowing the total roots of, of my own DNA and my own background, so that you are having the space for people to come and maintain that is great. It's not all good, though, uh, unfortunately. So in the podcast that you're listening to, you've already heard the poem about the irony of the the new black millionaire where we talk about police violence. And for me, I, I get to see Black Lives Matter and I get to see people rally in the streets and, and I get to see, it's, it's, it's horrible what's happening, but there is a, a presence for me. It's, it's on television, it's on the news. But if you don't take the step to do the research, you probably don't know what's happening in indigenous cultures here in the United States and also in Canada. Could you talk a little bit about what's going on? Um, continued genocide of indigenous people in mm -hmm. the US and uh, Canada. Uh, 
um, it, it fits the institutional agenda, which is racist in, in its fundamental um, beginnings and its foundation, uh, that indigenous people essentially are just in the way of progress. And um, I, going back to humility versus competency, um, humility may have been what led to the demise, uh, but it's a new concept that's coming back because people are so unhappy. Um, mental health crisis among youth is at an all-time high. Suicide rates for uh, indigenous youth are at an all-time high. Uh, cop brutality is at an all-time high. And, and most of those institutions, cops, academic institutions, justice systems, are all based on this white supremacy uh, foundation where the people who are handing down the judgments aren't related to the people, don't look like the people, um, have no background or understanding of the people, and these people have most likely taken an, a competency class or an implicit bias class. And in some of those trainings, you do learn stereotypes. So, so competency training in the medical field, you'll get a, uh, a doctor who sees a, a Hispanic lady and he says to his assistant, um, don't give her any pain medication. She's, she's probably over-exaggerating. Hispanics are known to do that. As of all people of color are known to, to um, over-exaggerate their pain. Well, one of the girls in my, my humility cohort said, as a social worker and a medical social worker, she said, hell yeah, I'm gonna over-exaggerate my pain because I come from an immigrant mother who didn't know how to speak English, and I was her translator. And um, if I'm hurt, I was brought up under the understanding that nobody would listen to me unless I say my pain is a 10. If I say my pain is five or six, they're gonna say, take some aspirin and go home. Um, so yes, I'm gonna over-exaggerate because I need the attention. So we come as African-American people from the knowledge that for so long we were seen as three-quarter of a man, not even a whole human. Is there something like that? Yes, Native people are known as animals or dogs, like we had um, bounties for our skin, our scalps, uh, different prices set on women and children. Um, I can't remember which direction it goes, but it, the saying was, kill the nits and you kill the lice. Mm -hmm. in terms of speaking about our women and children. We were imprisoned. Uh, we uh, were removed from our lands, had to receive permission to leave the lands. Our hunting rights were taken away. We essentially starved uh, through this transition and where disease didn't take us out, alcoholism did, and where that didn't take us out, we took our own selves out. So I, I hear what you're saying and I have to tell you, when I did some research for this podcast, I was astounded. In the United States, we see police brutality with black men often, and we see it with Native people here. But I'm astounded at what happens with girls and women and police. And I'm gonna ask you both to speak to that. Awesome, um, not so awesome. So. What really struck me, growing up, I, I knew women just disappeared. 
um, and it just was something that was normal and you could just disappear and nobody will look for you you'll have a flyer circulated there's no really large things it helped if you had a large family um, but one of the things that really stuck with me when I was a teenager a girl was rescued from sex trafficking near the man camps and um, and this was in northern Alberta, I believe. And she said that while she was imprisoned, held against her will, the people who were buying her were the cops. The people who were buying her were the firefighters. Mm -hmm. And she said, her one statement that stuck with me is, who do you go to, where do you turn for help when the people who are supposed to help you are buying you? That's powerful. And Melissa, doesn't fare much better in Canada. Yes, growing up in Winnipeg, pretty much the hub of racism. There was even a big article published in one of their main magazines how it just said Winnipeg, the most racist city in Canada, and it caused this huge uproar, and the article just went into all of the reasons that made that part of Canada the most racist, and one of the biggest reasons was the missing and murdered Indigenous women, how it's just like people would come there just to pluck them out. out of the population and it really got people talking about how there could be this big underground ring of people like the police involved and everything because so many people would go missing and I remember when it really hit me was when I was younger my mom's friend went to the bar who was like her best friend and was poisoned and died and no one blinked an eye there was no investigation she was just a native woman who went to the bar got too drunk and died but she was actually poisoned and who knows what really happened to her and that's when it dawned on me, I was like, wow, you can just go out and die? You can just go out and be missing? Like I was probably seven or eight years old and I was just like, that is so crazy. And I began to see the world differently from that age. And then as I got older, the issues just got worse and worse and I just became more and more aware of like how bad it really was. Girls going missing all the time on a weekly basis. And as I got into the um, organization I, I worked for, NCIFM, we became involved in a huge event held every year by Bernadette Smith, who is probably one of the leading people in the city I'm from, who would spearhead um, awareness for missing and murdered Indigenous women. And she would create an event every summer just to, you know, celebrate the lives of the people who had gone missing, a place for the families to come, just to grieve, just to come out and meet each other, just to, just to be around each other. So every year we would have this big, um, like an outdoor celebration. So there would be all these artists performing, you know, a lot of the indigenous media would be there. So there's like an indigenous television organization as well. So those news anchors would come, all those reporters would all take turns like emceeing people performing. And it just became this yearly event to kind of just, anybody was allowed to come and witness and see the families that you would hear on the news, you know, you'd every, cause Every day on the news there was something going on and it became just really well known that there were so many people going missing. And Bernadette Smith was actually really, really, I guess, pivotal for that in Winnipeg. She even created um, an event called Drag the Red because the city is made of two rivers and a lot of the bodies would get dumped in the rivers. So she took it upon herself because no one's doing anything in the, you know, the systems to drag the river herself with her friends because, I guess they're all fishermen right they're, they're they're cree people 
they would fish on the lake. So they would get their own boats, they would get their own nets, and they would drag the river. And they found so many body parts. So much DNA was pulled from the river of people who had been missing. And then when people get convicted, they would just walk. That's another thing that would cause these huge rallies to happen in the city. There was um, Tina Fontaine, who was a very young girl. Yeah, this is really sad. And she was murdered by an older white guy and dumped in the river. They got him, and he walked. That's, Unbelievable. That's amazingly frustrating. Yeah, like in my city, all the time. Yes. I, I read that in 2015, 25% of all homicides were indigenous women yeah. in 2015. I'm, I'm, I don't know what it is as of 2019. But I also read that uh, Justice Minister, correct me with my pronunciation, Wilson Raybould. I don't know who that okay, is. Okay, um, said that Canada is not perfect and that there is room for improvement. And I felt like that was maybe an understatement, that there is room for improvement. Wow, someone's getting paid a lot. Sounds like they're coming from a competency level. Jeez. But also, um, Trudeau has addressed some of these things. How do you feel about, uh, definitely he apologized for um, the role that Canada had with the LGBTQ community. How do you feel like uh, things are changing and progressing in the last couple of years there? Well, I haven't lived there in the past couple of years, and I haven't been there since Trudeau has been on Parliament, so I can't really say, but from what I'm observing, mm -hmm. he's just another guy in the office. I mean, he's, it's, he's like this flashy... He takes after his father, who was the Prime Minister back in the 70s. His mm -hmm. father was the same deal, you know? He dated, like, movie stars and blah, blah, blah. I guess Trudeau's sort of like that today's version of that. So to me, he's just another guy. He's still going ahead with pipelines. He's still, you know, he's still not really helping. I mean, he legalized marijuana in Canada. Now everybody loves him, so there you go. But I still see the same exact things happening. It's still a mess. And so things have not changed so much that we can see a significant impact. And I'm going to ask you to draw parallels to... Um, I believe that there are some similar things that happen here in the United States, maybe not with the river, but where bodies of missing women were found. Right. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, in New Mexico and Montana, two young girls, younger than 17, were found. One was found under a trailer. Um, I can't remember where the other was found. Both of them were severely beaten. In both cases, the local police said that there was no, um, I, can't, I can't remember the exact lingo, there, it wasn't suspicious, they said. And so a week later, I was at a, a police fair bringing my, my child to see um, the fire truck and the ambulance and, and the cop motorcycles, and I found a, detect a detective with a booth, and uh, I said, I work in uh, providing women self-defense to combat the missing murdered indigenous women. Are you familiar with that? And he said, yes, I've heard of it. And I said, that's great. A lot of people haven't. But what I'm wondering is two weeks ago, or a week ago, these two young girls were found severely beaten and kind of body stashed. Both cops said no, uh, no suspicion, no cause for, um, like essentially their death wasn't suspicious. 
and I said, what do you think of that? And he thought for a while, and he kind of went, well, you can't beat yourself. Mm, right? So I was just like, mm. <laughs> And so, you know, we can be found um, beaten to a pulp. Our bones will be broken. Um, and still the system and the cops who are supposed to protect us and uh, fight for our justice uh, are saying that there's no suspicion when our bodies are found in that shape because we are at fault. We were in the wrong place at the wrong time. We weren't dressed right. We were uh, under the influence of substance. We were just drunks. Uh, we were partying. We had a risky lifestyle. We were in the sex trade. Uh, all of it is systemic institutional victim blaming based on racism. And so in um, some communities of color, there is either under policing or over policing when um, under policing that these crimes are allowed to happen um, and then over policing where there's too generous of violence in, um, in, in those communities of color and then under reporting or under justice and so it sounds like some of that is going on also. Exactly. Not only in Canada, but in the U.S. Uh, one of the stats that we use in our, our self-defense classes is that, I believe in 2016, the Urban Indian Health Institute based in Seattle did a study. They do a lot of studies, but they did one inquiry into missing, murdered Indigenous women. And, and in one year, they found that out of almost 6,000 nationwide uh, cases involving Indigenous women, only 103 or 106 of them were actually logged in with the Department of Justice. Um, when we're reported missing, our Amber Alerts don't go out, our, our uh, flyers don't make it. Essentially, from the very beginning, the system is stacked against us and we um, are, are at fault for our own demise. And this has a huge impact, not just on the cases being unsolved, but in every area, right, in your physical health, the mortality rate for Indigenous people is amazingly high. Right, and that goes into um, the environmental injustices that we experience. And so our homelands, our traditional territories, our sacred places are targeted by industry, state governments, as paths of least resistance because because of the jurisdictional issues, because of um, our inability to staff uh, full teams of scientists and lawyers, because of our inability to have the resources to stay in court for as long as the mining company wants to. Uh, so we're just out-resourced. Uh, and, and our voice isn't amplified. And when it is, it's usually framed in a negative light. So we have reporters coming in, um, and if any reporter tries to do good, Amy Goodman, uh, she's, she's jailed herself. Mm -hmm. And she's threatened, and she's muffled. And her reputation and, and career is, is essentially like tarnished in some way. So they're, they're fear-mongering amongst any accomplices that want to help us. Uh, and so I think the general broadcasting community and the TV community, news community, 
essentially wants to stay away from the issues and, and it just perpetuates that cycle of sweeping indigenous people and our genocide under the rug. But we experience a lot of mortality because we carry this historical trauma with us. Um, historical trauma isn't historical when it's continuing to happen. Our lands are continuing to be stolen without payment. Our lands are continuing to be destroyed with open pit mines. Our water from those areas are, are toxic. Uh, the Gold King Mine uh, water treatment plant just shut down and now the Four Corners area is all under alert again. And this was a mess that was supposed to be cleaned up um, two or three years ago. And even at that, it was in traditional territory of tribe and it impacts all of these people down to Albuquerque, all the way down to Albuquerque from Colorado. But our, our homelands are sick. Therefore, our people are sick, our culture is sick, and the only way to heal that is to uh, get people to understand that we deserve the right to be indigenous in the way we want to be on our lands and um, essentially just doing us. And we just need the world to just step back, not manage that, let us speak for ourselves, let us implement our own programs. If you want to fund that, don't design this cookie cutter program. Let each individual community create their own thing in the way they need to heal. And um, we'll stop seeing these high suicide rates, these, these uh, mental health crises, um, early deaths from respiratory illnesses, toxic water, uranium in the water, cancer. Um, the southwest area here in New Mexico and Arizona was deemed as a natural sacrifice zone unless it hurt people. But I think the unsaid thing in there is unless it, it didn't include indigenous people. So all of the tribes in that area are now facing uh, uranium contaminated water at levels that no human should be subjected to. But they're in a national sacrifice zone and and it says, uh, unless it hurts people, but were they thinking about the tribes, the pueblos, the nations in that area? I don't think so. I think, I think in that case, it was a really good example of how indigenous people aren't considered people. Are still not considered people. And so this invisibility continues, this unless you have the visibility as a mascot or you have the invisibility, you have the visibility of the um, exotic at maybe Halloween time for costume time, there's still this invisibility. And, uh, and so if the people are invisible, then the emotional health is invisible, the physical health is invisible, the um, social and, and everything is also invisible. And if the people are gone, the federal government has reached its end of its treaty obligation. That's interesting. I've never thought about it like that before. Mm -hmm. And tribes are working against themselves right now with membership quarrels. We have tribes dis-enrolling uh, people because they've got, you know, for, for example, like casino money coming in. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to enroll new people because they don't want their shares to be cut. So at some point along the way, these people forgot their indigenous uh, cultural humility and, and relationship roots, and they went to this colonized system of me at the top and mine. And, um, and they, they implemented this system where it's based on greed. 
and and it's disenrolling people. But the disenrollment of people is you have to make sure that your casino is going to carry you into at least the next 500 years. Because if you keep your people enrolled and you keep your population base up, then the, the tribal government will forever be obligated. As long as your people exist, the federal government will be obligated to pay you for education, health care, and uh, other treaty obligations. So there's, um, there's seemingly no benefit to creating health or um, ease for indigenous populations in the United States, and I'm going to get back to you, and the same with Canada. Oh, so the, the difference between the U.S. and Canada in terms of indigenous relationships is that Canada has already gone through the turmoil of having the conversation of reconciliation. The U.S. hasn't even reached the topic. There, we're, we're living in a get over it mentality. And it's only getting worse. Hate crimes are on the rise. There's 50%, a stat I read this morning from the Southern Poverty Law Center, is, who tracks hate groups, is that membership in hate groups across the country is up by 50% in the last year alone. We can see some of that evidence. And outside of the country also, we uh, have spread, uh, it's one of our imports that nationalism has spread to other countries and, and as we speak today it's the day after the shooting that happened in Christchurch mm -hmm. um, and so just again in in Canada so you you are a little bit of a step forward but your mortality rates are also yeah if you're living in an urban environment mm -hmm. you fare better than people who are living on reservations there's still communities in Canada in really far out Places where you can't access through roads, you have to take a plane, you have to wait till the winter comes that freezes the lake, then you can drive over to communities. So these communities are so far out there that some of them don't have water. Yeah, I remember I went to go visit one because I was also a traveling radio tech on top of everything I did. I would go to these communities, they'd have like a broadcast celebration and I would put the connection together to broadcast onto the station. So I would go to these far north communities and I remember going to one and it was towards the top of Manitoba, so by the Hudson Bay, you're, you're getting towards the Arctic Circle. You're going really far north. They had no water, and that's just how life was. They were telling me, yeah, we just got electricity about 10 years ago, and this is like 2012. No water. That's just how they live. That's the way it is, and they're just used to that. That's how they were born. There's generations and generations, and that's not a problem to Canada. There's no... There's nothing really that they're doing to change that. They're like, well, the excuse has always been that type of land isn't really workable or something like that. We can't extend, you know, water that way. Like, there's always something that they say that, that they can't do. So you've got all these communities in these terrible conditions because there's no water. You know, people are still living in houses that are falling apart. There's mold everywhere. People are getting sick. They're just being born into these types of conditions and life still goes on in the big city like nothing's, nothing's going on. I remember coming back from that community and I was trying to tell the people that I knew, I was like, yeah, I was just up north and there's this whole 
group of people living up there with no water and they're just like, that can't be. And I'm like, yeah. And the whole population of Canada is just indifferent to it. Like they kind of know that there's something not right, but they just, they're just like, oh, that's, that's really too bad. You know, like they're sympathetic that way, but nobody wants to actually do anything about it. They're just like, oh, poor, those poor natives. That's really unfortunate that they have to live that way. Why don't they just leave and come to the city, you know? That's it's that so kind of mentality up there. And so again, that it doesn't help when you're living this way for your physical health and your emotional health. And I think that we as a nation have moved to the point where we do kind of understand the connection of the physical and the mental. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that's something that you've always recognized that there is a con that we aren't single faceted, that yeah. there is a connection between our environment our physical, our emotional, our totally. health. I spent four days up there and I came back with a bladder infection mm -hmm. because I was so scared to use the restroom. Because mm -hmm. I felt, one, felt bad for using up their water. I asked mm -hmm. for a bath once, I was staying with these people and I was like, I kind of want to have a bath and I felt so bad just to ask. And they're like, oh yeah, no problem. And it took about two hours to fill up that bath. And I, I was like, okay, thanks. You know, so stuff like that, I was just like, how did they do it? And why do they have to? Yeah, and that's just normal to them. So for me to go into that environment, I came back and I had to go to the doctor and you know get medication. And I can't imagine having to live in that sort of environment. The, the, the way your body reacts to just not having water available, clean water. Right, they would, so They would get important. these big um, jugs filled up once a week from this water truck and they would just have to use what was in that big jug for everything. That's incredible to yeah. think of that we are sitting in 2019. Yeah, isn't that crazy? So, well, you you both are here now in Phoenix, yeah. and and you're working at this organization. How do you see what you are doing every day um, as a change agent for what's happening with Native people, with Indigenous right. people? So I struggle with that my whole life. I can't change anything, really. I just have to change myself. So I do the things that I need to do to process this world in a good way. So that's what I'm doing. And hopefully it inspires someone to do the same. That's the only way I've tried to figure this out. Mm -hmm. So that's the only way. Yeah, very, very similar to Melissa. It's, uh, the work has to start with the individual. And um, we need uh, mentors out there essentially uh, to show that there is a, a positive life after so much historical and current trauma. And, um, and the organization in particular, it's, it's slow work, but we're working to record these environmental and the social injustices and uh, where hate crimes are happening versus where environmental uh, sacred sites are being desecrated. And we hope that this project is not only just for native kids in a native community, I hope that this project essentially builds out to um, institutional change in the American and Canadian educational systems. So I'm putting this project together so that a doctorate student can use it in her thesis. And I'm also putting it in uh, language that a fifth grader can be entertained by it. But the most important thing is that I work as a recorder to work with the tribes 
to rewrite that narrative from our own perspective and not the conqueror's perspective and to get that information out to the world brings a justice uh, to humanity. Um, it's an injustice to humanity to have anyone's story retold in a different way to fit somebody else's agenda. So in looking at your Facebook page, I see that there are just so many opportunities for exactly what you're talking about. So I'd like for you both to just take some time now and do a commercial, plug what you want to plug. Interesting. So I have so many things. So um, if you are um, an ally, accomplice, an indigenous person, and you know of any social injustice, any environmental injustice, please contact me. Let's get it recorded. Um, one little story of microaggression leads to a big picture perspective. And I don't think non-indigenous people or the world is going to understand um, essentially the continued plight of the native person. And, and uh, the only way to have things change is by first acknowledging that there's a problem, right? You can't cure cancer unless you know where the cancer is. And so the, the cancer is this ignoring of our history and our right to be as we are without trying to mold us into what um, society thinks a man or a woman should be. Uh, let us be the indigenous people we are. And, and that doesn't mean we want to go back to living in teepees and, and riding our horses. That means that we want to practice our religions. We want to dress the way we want to dress. We don't want to be defined by this Euro-American um, idea of a woman or a man. And we want to be um, who we are in our own distinct cultures in the time now. And how about you, Melissa? All right, so I guess in terms of indigenous vision. You said a commercial? You plug whatever you want All right. to plug. So as creative people, because we are very creative people, especially people of the drum, if you are a musician, an artist, I encourage you to get into a studio, record something, go out and just perform and just share your gift with the world because we might pick it up and play it on Indigenous Vision Music. I love it. Where can we find you? Um, we have a SoundCloud page now, which is really cool that they've just put up. So it's um, soundcloud.com slash Indigenous Vision. You can also hit up our website, indigenousvision.org. There's also the music tab there that will lead you to our music show because I take care of the celebratory aspect of life because I need to or else I'll get super bummed out. Um, but yeah, I think that's really great. I think I would love to see what we're doing kind of evolve into a place where we can create spaces for people to be creative. Because I noticed in America, um, there's not really a whole lot of studio action going on compared to Canada, where there's lots of, I guess, cultural funding for music. Wow. It's a lot easier for an Indigenous artist to get into a studio and produce that track, album, or whatever they want to do. Whereas here, there's all this talent just kind of wandering and circuiting around, but no one's able to go into a studio, so I would love to somehow make that happen. Yeah. And where can we find you? Indigenousvision.org. Uh, my email is there, info at indigenousvision.org if you want to email us. Um, and we also hold uh, our community dialogue uh, and discussions. Uh, 
a dialogue is more more along the lines, uh, is that we just essentially want to create that space. So um, whether you're Native, you're not Native, Black, Chinese, Japanese, whatever you are, uh, we all need tools to help us build healthy relationships with dropping that colonial mentality of hierarchy and um, uh, discrimination. And so our cultural humility dialogues are open to the community. Uh, they're once a month, once every six weeks, and then we also have paid trainings if you are in a workplace environment that's just hostile to your well-being. Um, invite your boss, invite your coworkers, come out to a training. Uh, they, those are certificate trainings. We can do CEUs for people who need those. And, um, and, and let's uh, start being the change ourselves. Let's create a better world together. Wow. I want to thank you both for sitting down with me today, and I, um, I'm looking forward to doing more work with you guys myself. For sure. I'm totally down. Thank you for listening.